Malcolm Holine is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. And uh, he joins us Friday mornings at this time with the weekly update. Mr. Holine, welcome back to JM in the AM. Mokotov to you, to everyone, and a good Arab Shabbos. Thank you. New leadership everywhere. Israel, Iran. I mean, stuff is going on all around the world. I'm going to selfishly start this conversation, as I do every conversation with people in the know these days. Any update regarding whether it will be a much simpler process for Americans to travel to Israel after July the 1st? It's the million-dollar question, which I get (laughs) asked maybe uh, 400 times a day. And there are hundreds and hundreds of people uh, hanging on the answer who have applied and who are in the process. Uh, It's still not clear. I think that the announcement was made by the out members of the outgoing government right. because they wanted to get the credit for it you know before they left but there was no thought in terms of the actual regulations or restrictions whether you have to be tested or not tested and will it be geographic limitations so people just have to be patient a little bit more till they find out we don't know for instance what will happen with children and people are not inoculated right uh, and i know that many people bought tickets and have had to change them and, and rework them can i share but, with you what i did I'm sure. Oh, thank you. Uh, I actually I actually booked a ticket for the 4th of July, and here's my attitude. You ready? You're going to be impressed with this, by the way. You know me pretty well. You're going to be impressed with this. My attitude is, if they relax the rules to the point where all you need is proof of vaccination and some type of test, okay, I'll keep the reservation. But if it's still going to be the paperwork, the prove you have a relative, you know, uh, fill out 10 forms, if it's still going to be that, then I'll just simply postpone the trip. Yeah, but it's, you know, you get a refund these days from airlines, but sometimes it can take a long time with the different airlines till you get it. Oh, I won't worry about a refund. And, I'll, just, I'll just change the date of the trip. I'll and you can it. keep changing the date yeah. until they, they either they clarify or you do. But, I mean, I, I mean the, truth, <laughs> the truth is I'm asking you, and, and you're the first one to admit that you're as confused on this issue as everybody else. I mean, is it possible that it will drift into a vaccination proof and test only after July 1st, or your guess is as good as mine? I don't know how soon after July 1st. I do believe that that will be the case over the summer. They need to bring tourism back. But I was warned that even there will be a problem maybe with children, unvaccinated children and things like that, uh, which is yet to be clarified. But um, I don't want to say more because people then think that we're giving them an indication of something that, frankly, we just don't know yet. They don't know. It's not because we're holding something back. It's that the people who are the regulators... Ministry of Health, they're all new people, and they they haven't decided. Uh, you were in Israel two Fridays ago. Last week you had a family simcha, mazel tov, but two weeks ago you were in Israel. Uh, so we know that at that point when you were actually there, the coalition was being formed, and many of us were predicting they would still fall apart. It didn't. By the way, were you surprised that that coalition in the end didn't fall apart on some technicality or someone being upset about you know some policy involved in the whole coalition agreement? When it hangs on one vote, you're always surprised, and when you have such broad diversity, I met with the heads of all the parties in the day. I was one day alone. I think we had 11 or 13 meetings. Wow. Uh, just every head of party, both from the prime minister and the foreign minister, defense minister, down and up, uh, and as well as visiting uh, the place, which I just want to tell you about in a second, 
Um, so I will tell you that even those who were part of the coalition weren't certain that it would actually come to fruition. <laughs> but they were united by one thing, and that was the anti-Netanyahu. That's enough, perhaps, to form a coalition. It's not enough to sustain it. What will keep them together now is that some of them know that if they go to elections, they will not get make it back into the Knesset. They will not win enough seats to cross the threshold. And the um, so they have that to unite them, and, and obviously people don't want to go to another election. And whether they can function when you have the Arab groups already threatening to pull out, and you have predictions uh, from uh, some of the other constituencies that uh, it's not going to last, because they're all leveraging it for, the, for their agendas, uh, and when you have a one-vote margin, you have a lot, even the smaller parties have a lot of, um, of carry a lot of weight. So we'll have to see. I don't. I think anybody who predicts how long this will last is um, is being foolish because there are a million different things that could intervene, including a resumption of hostilities. Um, you know, the not the inability to pass a budget, which I do believe they will be able to do. So I think for for the immediate future, uh, Balfour Street will be occupied by the Bennets and not the Netanyahu's who are still there, but will move out probably in the next 10 days. And uh, I just want to just tell people that we went to see the cities where damage had been done to visit with the people. And in Ashkelon, where I think 400 rockets were targeted, uh, thank God Iron Dome took out most, but we saw the home of a Holocaust survivor. She was 90 years old. Both her legs were cut off from the rocket, and her Indian nurse was killed. But the total devastation in Petah Tikva, where one rocket fell between buildings, and everything within one block radius was affected. And that apartment building has to come down, and the ones behind it are have been vacated. Thirty cars were, were burnt. I mean, the amount of destruction, and people also don't know that inside the rockets, they put metal, um, you know, these piping, they cut it up, uh, construction piping, and put it in. So it comes out at a very high speed, and I saw it go right into the middle of a tree. I don't think what it does to human being. And lastly, about Lud where I saw Kristallnacht, the shuls and, and yeshivas that were destroyed, burnt out, where, you know, Arabs pointed out what were Jewish homes of their neighbors the, in the buildings they live, telling the rioters which were the Jewish apartments and abandoned so that they could loot. And, it, it um, you know, this is these are all wake-up calls that uh, I think have to be, be thought about. The world is rushing to give billions of dollars to Hamas, yep. a terrorist organization, to rebuild in Gaza. Nobody talks about the hundreds of buildings affected and the people, uh, the trauma, other things that have impact Israelis, the uh, cost the government of Israel bears. I'm not at all minimizing Kristallnacht, as you described it, and that's accurate. The, the only difference, of course, is that we did see the uh, incredible... Um, aggressive tenaciousness of our Israeli brethren, in some cases, rebuilding those shuls ASAP. And obviously that's a big difference. The resilience is amazing. You're absolutely right. And we were meeting in a place, and they said, you know, this was one of the shuls burnt down. You can't tell it, except that the windows aren't in. And the the immediacy with which they move, and because you don't want to give the enemy victory also, once you leave deterioration like that, it tends to spread and it feeds on itself. But I can tell you that in the streets... You can see the concern and fear of people. I got to go back to the election for a second, uh, or the coalition more accurately. Um, I mean, look, you know Netanyahu very well, obviously. He was in office for 12 years, and you know him from way before that. I mean, 
the media is portraying him, you know, behaving in a Trumpian manner, not willing to leave, sitting in the opposition with one goal, and that's to topple this teetering government coalition. I mean, I, I'm sure because it's Netanyahu, a lot of that is exaggerated. But what are your impressions about the way he's handling the aftermath of all this? Look, it can't be easy after all the years and after such a bitterly fought and and uh, campaign and one that invoked very personal attacks on him and his family. Uh, you know, people, no matter how thick their skin is, are are not immune to the impact of these kind of allegations and the, the vitriol that characterized the campaign. Uh, but I think he, he has moved, to, he is resigned to it. I, I spent a long time with him uh, during our visit in Israel, and he talked about issues. He talked about, you know, Iran and other things that, that Israel faces. It was There was no self-pity, and there was no, um, you know, uh, effort to, to cover up anything. He just focused on the issues and talked about his role in the opposition. And I think he will be a very active opposition leader. <laughs> um and, he and then you have to see, though, though what will happen with Likud. You see the challenges already being mounted by some serious people. Um, that's why BB wants to move much more quickly towards an election in Likud. Uh, others want to see it postponed because then candidates can mount campaigns. But it, it's a tough question to see whether there's anybody else who right now can lead the opposition in the way that he could. And he's entitled to handle his role in the opposition aggressively, right? You know, some people... Sure. Yeah, that's what I figured you'd say, and I and I think that's right. I mean, he's... You know, this <laughs> that's the role of the opposition, frankly. And if you want to do a job, you got to do it well. And I get that. The one criticism where I thought the, the media was accurate, um, you know, he's complaining publicly about the coalition that now includes an Arab party. Uh, I, I mean, is it true, uh, the media's uh, um, contention that he's really the one responsible for that because he opened up negotiations with the Arab parties when he was desperately trying to form his own coalition? I don't think he opened it up, but I certainly think that the that it is true that he uh, was ready to, to make common cause with the, some of them as well in order to get over the 61. Um, you know, the... the um, the question of whether of, of the role that they will play and how the other Arabs who are not part of the coalition will play, whether they try to isolate Abbas and the and the Ram party, will who seems to be cooperative and working well with the coalition. At least that's what they say. Um, so Netanyahu, yes, opened can said be said to have at least opened the possibility. Right. So that, yeah, I thought that was a justified point by many in the media. Uh, ironically, you know, within a week of the coalition being elected and, and Naftali Bennett being elected prime minister uh, by the Knesset, Israel is already back in Gaza. Now, is that an accurate way of portraying what's happened over the last 24 hours? In a limited fashion. How would you describe it? That they're back in a limited fashion. Well, what have they done? I mean, have they done similar, you know, uh, no. similar actions as to what they did, you know, just a month ago, or is it? Uh, no, this is much more, uh, much more restricted. But will, will it get a response? It, I mean, are, there, are, are is there a chance that rockets will now again? Well, I think it's a message to you know Hamas keeps portraying themselves as the victors and that Israel's intimidated and that they can they have a veto over what happens in Sheikh Jarrah and Yerushalayim the parade they. You know, they're declaring all these victories, uh, and it's very important that Israel, both for the morality of, uh, mor- morale of the people of Israel, but also for the impression that, that you don't, a terrorist group feeds off of that. And, 
you know, once they started launching the incendiary balloons, Israel has no choice. And I have to say, you listen to the media, they say some balloons were launched. First of all, these are balloons attached to which are explosive devices that have set dozens of fires, many of them very destructive. They can burn down the fields of a farm, a forest, um, a house, a land in, in the yards of um, kindergartens and schools. And not just balloons being launched, which, you know, and, and they said some, I heard a BBC saying some um, balloons were launched and Israel struck back with it. No, if you listen to what their own Palestinian reporters said, that more than 200 balloons had been launched that day and that they did started fires all over the south. And Israel struck in a very restricted and limited way not to escalate this. Nobody wants to see it escalate into full violence, but it has the potential if, in fact, they continue. They, they did try to rush the gate, the, uh, the barrier uh, fence uh, again uh, from Gaza, and Hamas called it off and pulled them back because they, I think they understand, and they have to get a clear message from this new government that they're not going to tolerate this. No government could tolerate it. Yeah. And the people in the South certainly need it. Yeah, no, I hear that. I'm just you know, worried about retaliation, obviously, and what the enemy might do. Uh, in terms of the parade, it went off. I mean, I know there were arrests, again, you know, of some of the enemy, but it went off essentially pretty peacefully, or at least without without incident, riots, injuries, etc. Yeah, the, and the police were well prepared. There right. were, I think, 2,000 police people uh, in, in uh, of various kinds, border police, regular police, They and they prepared for it. Um, I think if people didn't shout things, it would have been come off uh, certain things, it would have come off better, because you want to defang this whole argument, because the focus of it should be an assertion of, uh, you know, the, the celebration of the Six-Day War, mm-hmm. and an assertion of Jewish uh, sovereignty in Jerusalem, uh, and there were, I think, I think five thousand people, which was much less than were in previous years, but it was postponed several times, and I think people were concerned about the potential for uh, for violence, but it did not materialize, and I think that in the end they handled it well. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world, the web at AlchemSegal.com and the AlchemSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. If you like what you're hearing. Make sure to support us during our spring-summer campaign. Go to fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org. Be generous. We have one week left to the campaign. Again, it's fjbunity.org. And a big thank you to those who've been donating in memory of uh, Mayor Weingarten. Much appreciated. Um, Well, we do have an election coming up in New York City. Primary day is uh, Tuesday. But there's another election, Malcolm, that we should be paying attention to, and that's what's happening today in Iran. What is the update there? This is very important. I'm really glad you raised it because, you know, this is a non-election. Uh, the outcome is pretty much determined. There were a couple thousand candidates whittled down to seven that the Guardian Council uh, recommended, and, and that, or 11, I think, and that was whittled down to seven. Now three of them dropped out uh, yesterday, uh, so it was down to four. And I think one more was planning to drop out because <laughs> because it's very clear what the outcome is. It's Ibrahim Raisi will be our new leader in Iran. He will be the presidential. Uh, he will be the president. Um, he is. Uh, he replaces Rouhani. Is this the same position Ahmadinejad had? It's the same. This is uh, was just what I was going to say. That, uh, that Rouhani replaced Ahmadinejad, and they wanted somebody who would look better to the West. This guy. Is and this is really important to understand 
who Raisi is and that he has the backing of Khomeini, clearly. He's somebody who followed him as a teenager and ever since. Uh, that This guy is called the hanging judge. He's a murderer. He's under sanction by the United States. In the 1980s, he was part of a group of four judges that sentenced, I think, 5,000 people to hanging. He is... Um, um, it will it will strengthen Khomeini's hand at home, and many fear that it could uh, usher in more repression. Uh, he he lost in 2017 to Rouhani. He had run then, uh, but he didn't ever offer an economic program, a political program. Now he's promising uh, not to waste a single moment to get rid of U.S. sanctions. Uh, he's very hostile to the United States, and the, 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 he, the fear is also that he will replace the supreme leader. It, it puts him into the position of being a prime candidate to replace the supreme leader who is expected to step down at some point during this presidency. He, he, so he led this, this, uh, the legal system of the authorities that jailed and tortured and killed people for, who were critics of uh, state policies. He uh, was deputy head of the judiciary for 10 years before he became prosecutor general. He, he was, as I said, one of the four judges. And um, the 5,000 number, by the way, is considered a low estimate of the number of people that he sentenced to death. But I got so, to ask you, when Ahmadinejad ran, because I don't know, for some reason his era was, was the one he followed the most, when he ran, was it also this blatantly predetermined or it worked differently then? It was less predetermined because you had other candidates, but the fact is that now we're seeing how clearly they've moved to the hardliners. So all those who talk about moderation, you know, right. understand that it's nobody's a moderate. These are all only differences in degree of of being a hardliner. But the, the you know, Musavi, for instance, has been in house arrest for ten years. The others who were you know, slightly more moderate, let's say, or had dealt with the West better, uh, you know, they were all being eliminated. And here you have a clearly Raisi coming into power. Uh, turnout, I'm telling you, and here's a prediction, will be 20%, maybe less than 20%. It's a protest by the people. Wow. And, and the but government, and I know that the Ministry of Intelligence has a report estimating that 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 the turnout will be even lower than what I just said, but, but could be increased because they're doing a full-fledged campaign now to get people to turn out. That 20% gets all the attention. They get all the, Nobody here on this side of the world thinks that 80% even exists. They don't know that, and they don't hear what they're telling and the messages that they're sending and the opportunities that we have. And every time we give them more money, we're suppressing the 80%. We're building up to 20%. And the 1% of the 20%, they control the IRGC and the Supreme Leader control 40% of the economy. So when we the economy goes up, they go up. When they get they get the bulk of the money, it doesn't go to the people. It goes to Hamas and to Hezbollah and to terrorists. And you hear that being said inside Iran. But people here are not saying it and the the suppression i'm telling you will increase once he's in power what's it, his uh, attitude well, let me just, yes, just say it, it consolidates the power of the mashus the parliament which is one that ordered the enrichment to 20 percent and now to 60 percent and we saw the reports this week that they have um uh, that that they admit that they have six and a half kilograms of uranium enriched to 60 percent and about over 100 kilograms enriched to 20 percent all violations of, of the the deal so this has much broader implications this is not just an insignificant election but didn't i read that he's pro the iran deal with the u.s or that no, he, he, he they set conditions where 
all sanctions have to be removed. Uh. Everything has to be done before. He represents that that faction that um, they don't care. They don't want a deal. And in fact, many of them opposed to entering the deal. They want us. They want to see even a harder line against uh, anything that has to do with the U.S. Did the uh, did the Putin Biden summit include discussion about Iran? Sure. And I mean, any progress? And are we on the same page? I never know with Russia, you know, if they if they want to encourage a deal or not. Russia encourages anything that is in their interest, right. where they benefit financially and otherwise, and Putin in particular. And the you know the um, the role that they played together with China. First of all, they flirt. They they made deals. They've signed deals. There is a report that they want to provide Iran with this very sophisticated spy satellite system, which will enable them with these high-resolution cameras to be able to watch what happens at military bases in Israel, the movement of ships, American troops in Iraq. Now, then, then the Russians denied it, but the evidence is that there were groups from Russia there training people on the use of the system. They had their ships, uh, military ships and other things, visit I- Iran, and they, of course, work with them where it's in their interest, and they fight them in Syria. They're in the, uh, they oppose each other. And Russian troops have, you know, fired on, on Iranian militias and the people they back. So everything with Putin is pragmatic for what serves his purpose and and not the people or the broader interests of peace. Right. Sometimes, though, it's hard for the average guy like me to to figure out what is in his best interest. Like, but, Yeah, but his best interest is, that, is, number one, that he wants to extend the reach, as does Iran. Iran had two ships that crossed past the Horn of Africa, are in the Atlantic now, first time without having to stop in a port, the Macron ship, which I talked about, which is their largest, and a, and a, a missile boat accompanying it. Uh, and the belief is that they're going to end up in Venezuela. We see fast boats on the deck that are probably being delivered, and a lot of weapons, maybe even uh, gasoline, because that's the speculation, judging by the pattern of the ship. Uh, so he and this is uh, Iran showing that it has a global reach. The same thing is with with Russia. They have a global reach and they are building bases now, which they didn't even have in the times of the Tsars. With the, in despite their expansionism, then to have it in Syria, to have it in Libya, to have it elsewhere, so that they you know projecting uh, as a global power, though their economy is is minimal. Um, I don't know, based on the limited information about their private meeting, uh, I don't even know how much you can comment about this, because I don't know how much knowledge even one like yourself has about it, but what is your impression in general of this whole Biden-Putin summit, and did the U.S., because it's really hard to believe the media sometimes in this regard, did the U.S. come out you know, looking like a, a strong, capable country or a laughingstock? Or something in between. Uh, Putin today said that Biden was a very tough negotiator, um, and he he may have been on some of the issues. And if you know if he was up to it and really challenged Putin, um, we will we will only know with time to see how much of an impression and how tough a negotiator he actually was. And what other countries could have been on the agenda? Did they discuss China? Is that relevant to Putin? But certainly relative to Putin, but today more and more they're working together. They share certain goals. Uh, China is motivated by its own interest in getting energy and uh, expanding the road and belt to, to expand its uh, global footprint as well. Uh, as you know, in Africa, they, they rape the continent. They take all the food out, everything out, and African leaders complain all the time about it. 
but they are, you know, expanding in the high-tech areas and others, including in Israel. Yeah. So for, for Russia, uh, you know, Iran is an important issue, but the most important is its presence, at the, the, any challenge to it in the Ukraine, which is the most sensitive issue, and about NATO bringing Ukraine in and NATO's presence and seeing it as a challenge. The pipelines are critical because they want to control the flow of energy to, to Europe. I mean, to me, that that seems to be what Putin's uh, major interests would be. Yeah. It's hard sometimes when you're watching a summit and you're not sure if the two people meeting are friends or enemies. And I know that often it's in between. I get that. You know, Reagan, Gorbachev, I get the whole thing. But it just, it, it, I, I just don't know. I don't know what the landscape is in terms of, you know, all we hear from the American media is how horrible Putin is. So I'm assuming he's sitting there with an enemy. But the reality is they have so many interests that are, you know, that are dual interests for both countries that in some ways they have to cooperate with each other. Yeah, but there's more to it. I mean, nobody should underestimate Putin's ability. I've sat with him on numerous occasions, sometimes for long times, uh, and he can be very charming, very disarming. I mean, he's a KGB guy, and he always will be, but he can be, uh, you saw, remember when President Bush said, I saw his soul, and others have, you know, said the same thing, because he can be very disarming and, and um, you know, achieve his goals with honey, not with uh, confrontation, but you see the, the, on the ground the the uh, efforts and, and the response to it. There's a big exercise in Italy today with Israeli, American, Greek, French, uh, 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 Italian, uh, F-35s, the biggest exercise ever of F-35s, working together, sharing information. Uh, you know, people are concerned, and it's the concern is throughout the region um, of the, both the outside players and the domestic players. Certainly, mm-hmm. Turkey's role in this. Couple of uh, election things, just uh, quickly. First of all, on the Iran, just as a as, as a formality, I don't know why I'm so curious about this, but we know that the president of the United States, for instance, and others, you know, they they call world leaders when they win elections. Is there a call from Biden to this guy or not? Like, would that happen or no? It would not happen. He personally wouldn't take a call. Second of all, it won't happen. He spoke to Naftali Bennett, correct? Meaning the president of the United States spoke to Naftali Bennett. He called him within an hour or two of the election. And what would you say, I have to ask you this, because you got to calm everyone down. What would you say to the segment of the community, meaning our community, or to people in general in our community, who, who are so f- fearful that this coalition will be anti-Jewish, anti-religious, uh, 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 kowtow to the Arabs, give away land? I mean, there's a lot of extreme, I don't want to say... Um, that, that these positions are extreme. I'm just saying that there's a lot of rhetoric going on where people are making assumptions about what could happen. Uh, wouldn't you agree that because the coalition is so broad with so many parties, it would probably limit the ability to do extreme things? I think even more than 60-59 margin is going to limit their ability to do things. Second of all, I think that the they know that these are the uh, very difficult issues, and they will not address them unless it's imposed on them. They will deal with the reconstruction after COVID, the economy. They'll look at the broader consensus issues. There are some members who will raise religious and other issues. I've I discussed this with uh, a number of the key leaders about what the impression will be that they appear to be, you know, hostile in some of these issues. But remember, you you know, you have people like Naftali Bennett who came out of the settlers' movement, um, uh, all the way to the head of merits and uh, the Labor Party and others who are on the left. Yeah. But I think their agendas are much more domestic. Um, they, the development of the Negev, they, the promise of 
billions of shekels to, to development in the and to the um, southern uh, Arabs uh, because of the presence of the southern Muslim. Remember, it's a Muslim Brotherhood party, but it's right. you know, moderate considered compared to the northern Muslim party, who is very extremist Islamist. So. Your, all your questions are right. There are a lot of question marks. I don't think they know yet quite how it will work. They signed intense agreements. We don't know the content of all those agreements that uh, hopefully that the status quo will maintain. But you see already that they're talking about some Some of them are talking about kashrus and, and gayrus and, and conversions and all these critically sensitive issues. Um, and But I think that those who are smarter know that it's, it's wiser to let those things... Um, not to start opening those Pandora boxes. Yeah, well, I, I, I keep thinking it's inevitable that those boxes will be open, but maybe you're right. It'll be, be, be postponed indefinitely, which might be the best way to handle it, frankly. Um, so this guy, I mean, this is just one example. Um, Malcolm, I bring it up because we've been trying to encourage people to become more and more active. We had a discussion yesterday with OU Advocacy. They've set up a pretty simple website where people who want to you know, have regular contact with their members of the United States House of Representatives and U.S. Senators. They're they're, they're hopefully going to, uh, um, with this method, uh, it'll develop in a way that people can, you know, have easier access and and meet with them. And I know you encourage that. Obviously, you encourage face-to-face meetings and Zoom meetings. And we have no choice these days. With all the anti-Semitism and all the anti-Israel rhetoric, we have no choice. Everybody, even the average person out there, needs to get more involved when it comes to speaking to our public officials. But I continue to worry about social media and the Internet. I saw this one. This is C.J. Whirlman. I'm sure you've heard the uh, the Twitter handle. He's claiming that 40% of Palestinian minors detained by Israeli security forces are raped. Almost 100% of them are tortured. Now, why why is it so hard to get things like this canceled when so many other things are so cancelable on social media? It's a very good question. It is something that we are trying to address. But I'll tell you that there is... We're up against state sponsors of of this stuff. You know that the um, Iran operates anti-Semitic social media campaigns. The Hitler was right. Kill all Jews came from Iran. Time magazine, in fact, did did do an expose of it about the troll farms in which these fake accounts put push anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and hate messages. They said that the Hitler was right and kill all Jews was uh, appearing. 175 times per minute in different sources in the Internet. And we know that from the university studies and others, um, they, that this, this is a very sophisticated campaign. They used it against Trump. They used it against others. Uh, and at the same time, we see, for instance, the Qatar, where the Qatari government, which gives $400 million to American universities based there, and you have a, a, more than a a half a dozen, I would say. I know Northwestern and Georgetown are primary ones, but they signed, majority of the professors at Northwestern's Qatar campus accused Israel of persecution and full support for the Palestinians in the letter. Uh, and none of, the, and they said another case where they said they should get rid of the Zionist professors and um, Northwestern's uh, Qatar campus professors issued a condemnation of the apartheid state. So we're up against very formidable enemies. These are not just haphazard uh, people, but this is sustained and and highly financed uh, campaigns. So we have to try and go after each one, identify it, get it removed as best we can. 
and uh, as you said, at the same time, we, we, we need a kind of activism in regard to the, to the Internet that we do regarding other things. There is also, by the way, the Senate and the House have the Israel Relations Normalization Act, and everybody should write to their congressman to, to support it. And you can um, – it, it also mandates the formula, formation of a government-wide U.S. Uh, strategy, strengthen and expand the uh, Abraham Accords, amongst other things, and against the um, – uh, the, 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 the those who fight fight against it to be sanctioned. So there there are a lot of things people can do in a positive way. There are also every time you see one of these manifestations online, you have to report it. You have to attack yeah. it, and and I we mean, just have to build the pressure. The, on the IDF stuff is just outrageous. I mean, completely. Just... But but look, the mainstream media you hear you hear them saying these things about what took place, and I'm telling you, having been there in the south and seen just a small sampling of the damage and destruction, they don't thank God for Iron Dome. Just think what the toll would have oh been if the ninety percent had hit, not the ten percent. And I saw what one rocket could do to a whole neighborhood in in um, in Petah Tikva. What would have been the case if if that you know had it not been for the success of the Iron Dome? Yeah, that's true. And by the way, one other thing about the media. And that is, it seems that they're hiding a lot of anti-Semitic episodes, uh, you know, uh, episodes that would have made headlines years ago, Jews being attacked in the streets, random attacks, right. I mean, on any, are, are completely, not, just not being reported at all. Uh, You're right. And, and, and one of the things, there has to be a campaign that every one of your listeners, and they go, should get every one of their rabbis to announce, everybody must report every incident, right. as minor as you may think That's it is. Right. It may be a pain, but you've got to report it. The statistics are important. And also on the positive side, Texas signed the IRA definition committing to the oh, wow. International Holocaust, first state to adopt it, Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, so we should press in every state that the governor should adopt it because it gives you a measure at least to define anti-Semitism and show that it has no place in society, as Governor Abbott said. Uh, you know, so there are things, positive things we can do, but also call out every time these these uh, incidents. Yeah, no question about it. People have to act. Uh, by the way, we always, we meaning here, I'm not including you, uh, often criticized Senator Schumer. Finally, he got to the Senate floor and really what I thought was a appropriate and strong statement about the anti-Semitism that's pervasive now in this country. So uh, sometimes it takes the leaders uh, time to come around. You know, Malcolm, uh, I- I'm getting the idea in the in the way the pendulum swings in democratic countries uh, in terms of extremes. I'm getting the idea that we're 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 swinging a drop, a drop in the right direction over the last few weeks. I don't know why I have that feeling, but I'm just getting that feeling. Do you think New Yorkers can elect a sensible leader this coming Tuesday? Are you anticipating that New Yorkers collectively can put somebody responsible in the seat of City Hall next Tuesday? I believe they can. I hope they will. The most important thing is that they've got to go out and vote. Right. You can't elect somebody if you don't vote for them, and then don't right. complain about the results if you opt not to participate and say, oh, it doesn't matter. It matters. And every vote in this case, look, you have a candidate who, who supports a very vicious uh, anti-Israel and some would say even anti-Semitic positions or people associated with those positions. That people have to come out, vote for the people who at least stand with us and have, have a history of support. And, you know, you can rely on what the mayor of New York, for instance, is a very important yeah. international position. Oh, it's yeah. a bully pulpit. It can, oh, yeah. it can do a lot. And when you have the kind of increase, 115% increase in anti-Semitic attacks just since Gaza. And the people, you know, 40% of Americans 
are feel insecure, American Jews, and 60% said that they have experienced or know of, uh, uh, directly of an anti-Semitic incident since the Gaza war. People are experiencing much more than they're reporting or let people know. And that is really critical to hold officials accountable. Police in New York have been reaching out. They've been trying and I think uh, doing it sincerely. They had presence at schools and uh, I see them much more visible in uh, some of the communities. But it has to be on a sustained basis. We need to see to it that they have the resources to do it. This is a very critical moment. And, you know, as much as we talk, we, we hardly scratch the issues um, that that um, confront us right now. But there are multiple things, some of which people can directly impact and not. You know, what Egypt does in, in Gaza or what uh, Turkey does is not right. something most citizens can affect. These are things they can impact. Understood. Uh, mazel tov to your family. Thanks for Thank joining you. us. We'll speak again next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Friday, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.